Mao Zedong has been called by one historian, quote, one of the most tyrannical despots of the 20th century, end quote. I think most of us, because of history class or pop culture, know something about Mao Zedong, about Mao Zedong, often called Chairman Mao or just Mao, because of his pivotal place in Chinese history at a pivotal moment in world history. In 1961, Mao's government, that of the Communist People's Republic of China, split from the Soviet Union, which was undergoing its own set of changes after the death of Joseph Stalin and the rise of new Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, who introduced a set of policies revolving around, first, de-Stalinization, and second, so-called peaceful coexistence, the former referring to a desire to step away from the cult of personality that Stalin had built for himself in the prior decades, and the latter referring to a new popular theory that communist states like the Soviet Union could peacefully coexist with capitalist countries like the United States. Mao vehemently disagreed with these concepts, in part because he himself was building his own personality cult at the time, and because he believed that the Sino, the Chinese interpretation of communist theory, was the correct one. And that version of the theory indicated that capitalists must be stopped, and that all good communists need to be in ever-present ideological opposition to them. This disagreement over ideological creed led Mao to denounce the Soviet Union as a product of, quote, revisionist traitors, end quote, and broke the alliance that the two countries had shared up until that point. During that same time period, from about 1958 until about 1962, a period of only around four years, Mao was undertaking what he called the Great Leap Forward, an economic and social plan that was meant to quickly convert the largely agrarian, technologically unsophisticated, and relatively poor nation into a collective-based, tech-heavy industrial giant. Unfortunately, this plan was predicated on completely top-down organization, and anything that bucked that trend, including things like private farming, when the government's mandates failed to provide food for you and your family, anything like that was prohibited. The failure of the Great Leap Forward is thought by most historians to have caused somewhere between 20 and 60 million deaths due to starvation and related ailments. These deaths were the consequence of mismanagement from the top and a failure of a monolithic authoritarian regime to capably control and manage a sprawling nation of primarily farmers, but it was also partially a consequence of the systemic violence that was unleashed by government officials and true Maoist believers, worshippers from the cult of Mao, who ruthlessly punished anyone who fell out of lockstep for any reason. People were coerced, kidnapped, brutalized, raped, executed, and enslaved in the name of enforcing this plan. A plan that at its heart was destined to fail, and predicated on unworkable math and ideological purity. After the catastrophic failure of the Great Leap Forward, there were a few years of pullback and pause before Mao unleashed his next plan, which at the time was called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution, but which today is often just called the Cultural Revolution. 
This movement lasted from 1966 until about 1976, and was catalyzed by Mao, claiming that the government had become filled with revisionists, which was a term used for people who had the gall to question or reinterpret what he saw as pure communist dogma. And he used this claim of bourgeoisie elements hiding amongst the government to rally a popular movement amongst especially urban youths and rural families of all ages, against politicians and thinkers who opposed the burgeoning ideology of Mao Zedong thought, which those of us outside of China usually just call Maoism. This witch hunt, which you could argue wasn't really a witch hunt because there were indeed people who were trying to steer the ship in a more Soviet direction, with a version of communist thought that would allow them to peacefully coexist with the capitalistic West and allow more management from the ground level rather than solely from the top. But this hunt gave the reins to Mao, scared the hell out of rural residents, mostly farmers, and shifted the country's power from the educated and the cities to the farmers and their tiny towns. One of many programs intended to de-bourgeois city dwellers was called the Down to the Countryside Movement, for which about 17 million young people from cities were sent to rural areas to work on farms and to learn to be farmers rather than whatever else they were learning at the time. These youths later became largely outcast from the cities where they grew up because they, unlike their peers, were unable to attend university or get any other education. They had been out learning to farm instead. So after they'd spent their time out in these rural areas forced there by Mao as part of a propaganda campaign that romanticized good, wholesome, traditional farming lifestyles while demonizing the elitist city dwellers, those young people returned home to find that they had none of the skills that they would need to work or function in the modernizing cities, and were then, for all intents and purposes, exiled to remote parts of China to try to scrounge some kind of life from those undeveloped regions. So this movement was popular amongst the rural farmers because it allowed them to feel superior to city dwellers, but it ended up being quite unpopular because it ruined the lives of millions of young people without contributing anything to the ostensible goal of modernizing the economy and developing a refined future-thinking version of Chinese culture. Much of the rest of the Cultural Revolution had similar outcomes. Big ideas were dreamed up by Chairman Mao and his advisors to please his rural supporters, but these ideas failed to achieve their intended outcomes instead further dividing the country, leading to famine instead of plenty, and killing, imprisoning, or exiling some of the nation's most capable hands and minds. Anyone who spoke or acted against this policy, or the government, was publicly humiliated, imprisoned, tortured, sentenced to hard labor, or stripped of all their possessions. Some were executed, while others were forcibly moved and sentenced to live in parts of the country that lacked basic services, resources, and in some cases, other people. This revolution also called for the widespread destruction of cultural and religious artifacts from Chinese history, the intention being to forcibly extract Chinese culture from that heritage so that it could blossom into a beautiful and world-straddling communist nation, dominating all others, leading the way for the, as they saw it, inevitable adoption of Chinese communist ideology by all the governments of the world. That was the intent, at least. Instead, this period is primarily seen today as the moment when Mao, a military folk hero and cult-worshipped leader, 
demonstrated his inability to lead a country to greatness. The changes Mao instigated are sometimes nodded at as being well-intentioned, but the official party line in China today is that the man was, quote, 70% good, 30% bad, end quote, and that he helped the Chinese culture move away from ancient beliefs and superstitions that they needed to shed in order for their culture to become truly great. And cleansing their people of these outdated beliefs is what paved the way for their future successes. Whether that's true or not is up for debate, but what happened next in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution was the development of what's become known as socialism with Chinese characteristics, the modern approach to communism that allows for certain market-based practices like international trade and corporations and stock markets, but with firmly held government-managed structures underpinning all of it. And that firm hold is maintained by censorship, at times gulag-style punishment, and coercion, where it's deemed necessary to ensure that all the pieces fit together, that the state flourishes, and that the Communist Party persists. What I'd like to talk about today is China, and particularly what this shift, this change they've undertaken from the early 80s onward, after they closed the book on the Cultural Revolution and relegated Mao to history, what that looks like. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The piece I want to start with today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled China's Staggering 40 Years of Change in Pictures. This piece is something like a listicle with a bunch of interesting photos comparing where China was in 1978, the year it started to liberalize some aspects of its government and economy, compared to where it is today. It also includes some interesting data points, like the fact that there are over 300 million registered vehicles in the country in 2018. 8.54 million of those are cars, and that's pretty wild because in 1978, there were only 77,000 personal cars in the country. During that same time period, bike ownership has dropped from 5.6 million bikes in the streets in 1978 to about 2 million primarily shared bikes on the roads today. In 1978, China's GDP was about $218.5 billion, and in 2017, it was up to a massively larger $12.25 trillion. Life expectancy for the average Chinese person was 66 years in 1978, and now it's about 76. So another decade of life for most people as a consequence of the changes that have occurred since 1978. Literacy was about 66% in the 80s, and it was up to 95% by 2010. China also sends a lot of people abroad, from students studying overseas to people taking vacations. China is actually the world's largest source of international students and has the world's largest number of outbound tourists as well. For comparison, Chinese people took 135 million trips to other countries in 2016, compared to just 5 million in 1995. And while just 860 Chinese students studied abroad in 1978, a staggering 608,400 did so in 2017. One of the most extraordinary stories of the 20th century, though, in any part of the world, is that of China's emergent middle class, which was nearly non-existent in the mid to late 70s, but which has since ballooned into a population of nearly 400 million people. 
which is 70 million more people than live in any economic situation in the United States. This massive shift from poverty to relative economic comfort seems to be the consequence of the aforementioned economic liberalization that they undertook in 1978 when they shifted to a state capitalism model so that everything was run by a single political party, but special economic zones, private ownership, and trade with the rest of the world was now allowed on more levels. So despite the authoritarian centrality that still dominates some aspect of everyday life, the country's manufacturing and other economic efforts could interconnect more easily with the economies of most other nations around the world, allowing them to leverage their relative advantages to capture vast wealth in a very short period of time. This is a country that in 1981 had a poverty rate of 88%. That number dropped to 6.5% by 2012. That's absolutely astonishing. And it's important to note that China's economic figures have been challenged regularly by international entities and by people within the country who have reason to know something about what they're discussing. But that caveat in mind, it's still quite clear that China has managed to dramatically improve the lives of a huge number of people, even if the numbers might be slightly different than what the government says they are. 88% of almost a billion people, which is what the population was back in 1981, that's huge. That's a lot of poverty. That many people in poverty anywhere is not good. To get that number down to 6.5% of around 1.3 billion in 2012, and down to an estimated 2% of the total population of 1.5 billion in 2018, that's simply astonishing. It's almost unbelievable, which is part of why there is so much speculation about the truth behind these numbers, and those questions are valid and important and do persist. But if you look at the country and what they've managed to do with their hybrid model of authoritarianism and a riff on capitalism, it kind of sort of makes sense. They seem to have some powerful advantages when dealing with countries that utilize purer versions of either capitalism or planned economies, and with those that utilize either straight-up democracy or non-party dictatorships. One more point of clarification here is that the term middle class in one country is not the same as middle class in another. And middle class as a term is super fuzzy, and there's no one set widely accepted boundary, even within a single country. In the United States, the average middle class income number used by a variety of measuring systems is around $46,000 a year. While in China, it's any household with assets worth between $18,000 and $36,000 US dollars a year. Middle income classes in other countries can be $10 a day, or $10,000 to $100,000 a year, or $71,799 a year, as is the case in Luxembourg. Such metrics are tricky to glean real meaning from, because they're used so differently, because standards of living are different in different places, because what you earn and what you spend does not necessarily indicate what your quality of life is and what you can afford in the region. And because the numbers are typically aggregated by biased parties like the government and banks and think tanks that may have business in the region, all of this is up for debate and all of it is super fluffy and it might point at a general thing that is happening but should definitely be questioned. We should remain skeptical about all of this. This individual and family-level economic shift, though, is not necessarily the most important or meaningful economic evolution China's been experiencing these past few decades. 
the one that most market-related news networks and periodicals have been fixating on, especially this year, is China's GDP, their gross domestic product, which is currently the second largest after the United States in terms of nominal GDP, meaning the total of all goods and services that the country produces in a year. But they are already number one in terms of purchasing power parity GDP, which refers to an economic trick whereby you convert one country's currency to another country's currency and apply that converted total to purchasing a collection of common consumer goods. This is similar to The Economist's Big Mac Index, which tracks relative purchasing power for everyday things in a particular country or city by gauging how much a Big Mac costs a local to acquire. That first type of GDP, though, nominal GDP, is expected to shift in China's favor in the near future as well. Again, this isn't the same as per capita earnings per person. It's an indication of the overall value created by a country in a given year based on stuff that they make and services they provide as a totality. And China, in part because of their sprawling population, the largest in the world, and in part because of their regular growth year over year, is on track to take home that economic medal in or around 2029, if current trends continue. Of course, a good heuristic when looking at statistics or predictions is that if it says or implies if current trends continue, or uses variables, like in this case, average national growth rates, to make said prediction, it almost certainly means that the prediction in question is not terribly accurate. It's a guess dependent on everything staying exactly the same, which is not something that tends to happen. So China could overtake the US, according to this metric, much sooner than predicted, or far later, or never. Portugal could make a surprise leap forward and overtake everyone in terms of GDP. It's impossible to say for certain. But for the moment, we can say that things look good for China's prospects in this regard. And here in the United States, economic doomsayers are getting a lot of mileage and airtime out of making somber predictions about when it'll happen and what it all means. Beyond those latent, somewhat population-driven advantages that China enjoys, which are slowly inflating their levels of influence, power, and prestige, we find inbuilt advantages that stem from their unique governing model. The one I mentioned in the intro that they transitioned to post-cultural revolution, which is usually referred to as socialism with Chinese characteristics. This one-party system, run by a ruling caste, and with transitional power controlled by the same party from year to year, decade to decade, regardless of what specific politician might be in control, gives them continuity and the ability to plan long-term. For all the benefits of a democratic system, and there are many, there is something to be said for not being limited to four-year stints, or eight years if you're lucky, like here in the United States. And part of that time in office is spent trying to prepare oneself for the next leap, which means building up accolades, doing things that will look good on your resume, on your CV, so that you can then point at that when you're aiming for your next term as president, or representative, or governor, or whatever else. The ability to have one party in office for decades at a time, then, and to know with near certainty that the same party will be there 20 years from now, can allow these governments to focus on longer-term goals and actually hope to achieve them. It's possible to hand such goals through time in a democratic system with constant shuffling of leadership roles and personalities as well, but it is less certain. The ambitions of the previous administration might not fit with what the new one has in mind, 
and the frequent cutting of promised programs and goals demonstrates that fact every time the baton changes hands. That same authoritarian system allows China to more deeply integrate their security agencies and military with their everyday operations, including their media, their tech industry, and their corporations. This is not necessarily a good thing in terms of foreign perception of your local brands and businesses, as recent American concerns about Chinese company Huawei, a tech company that grew to massive proportions seemingly overnight, and which is a suspected sock puppet entity for the Chinese government, demonstrates. One long-standing complaint by the U.S. government and other foreign governments against China is that they require foreign companies that want to operate within their borders to disclose their informational assets, to essentially give the secrets of their hardware and software to Chinese officials. It's yet to be publicly proven for sure, as this would be difficult to get concrete evidence to support, but it's widely assumed by folks who know about such things. That China often takes these secrets that they force foreign companies to disclose and then feed them to their own China-based companies to help these companies catch up with foreign corporations and to allow them to receive the same benefits and make similar products without having to make the same research and development investments in terms of time and money. In other words, because China is such a desirable market... With all those people, many of them rapidly becoming wealthier, a lot of foreign companies are keen to get a piece of that action. So they move into the country, show all their secrets to China, and then China shares those secrets behind the scenes, that know-how and those innovations, with their own local companies, who then introduce similar offerings at a lower price, and they outcompete that foreign entrant within that massive Chinese market. This is technically illegal, according to international trade laws, but again, it's difficult to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt, and the consequences, in a lot of ways, have already been locked in. From 2006 onward, China's GDP started climbing at a massively accelerated pace. The same year, the first early smartphones were introduced, and when higher-end consumer electronics became a major purchase in most people's lives around the world, In the same year, China's dominance in manufacturing those components, due to their relationships with major foreign tech companies, began. This consecutiveness between government and what are often separate civilian agencies elsewhere also puts distance between China and the rest of the world in the pursuit of scientific matters like the exploration of space. China has their own space station and space infrastructure, separate from most other nations and the International Space Station and other internationally developed programs, in part because their military is inseparable from their space program. So there are pros and cons there, but the benefits of such a system, especially in terms of unifying your governmental and economic efforts under one umbrella and consistent, predictable leadership from one decade to another, cannot be overstated. When you give up certain freedoms and allow spy agencies free reign when it comes to public information and trotting over individual rights to weed out troublemakers, you tend to be able to lay down the law internally more effectively. And again, those overarching benefits come at the expense of the rights and freedoms that might otherwise be enjoyed by your citizenry. It's a trade-off. The argument against this model, though, starts with the fact that China is thought to be swimming in debt. The numbers they release to the public are widely considered to be highly doctored for perception purposes, and those official numbers have their debt sitting at around 47% of their national GDP. 
but outside estimates based on things that can be tracked and measured externally have their debt somewhere closer to between 280 to 300 percent of their GDP. And for comparison, the current national debt level here in the United States is about 104 percent of our GDP, a number that is considered to be just stupidly high. So if those 280 to 300 percent numbers are anywhere near accurate for China, that could be a very big problem for them in the relatively near future. There's also an apparent internal problem with those fake perception-oriented numbers. It would seem that this sort of reporting, something of a remnant of the Cultural Revolution, during which local governance would report false agricultural numbers to their superiors, because if they didn't, they would be severely punished. Today, something similar is happening in terms of accumulating fake accomplishments, like building great big cities that no one moves to, or building impressive infrastructure that have costs which far outweigh their benefit to the citizenry or government. In other words, there are incentives in place that encourage those with power to do impressive seeming things that measure up well to the metrics by which their careers are measured, but which by every other metric only really serve to help that person's career and to drain the coffers of the country. They're spending a lot to be able to brag about some cool stuff they did, but that cool stuff ends up being a liability rather than an asset. And those people who cheated their way to prominence end up doing the same thing later with vaster and vaster resources as they climb higher on the party ladder. Another downside of this governing model, despite all of its benefits in terms of ease of operation for those in charge, is the concern that if the hits ever stop coming, if the economy ever stops growing, or the perception of growth and a better tomorrow ever ceases, the Communist Party could have a big problem on their hands. Yes, right now, people seem to be generally happy, by most indications, to trade certain freedoms for more wealth and opportunities. But if that ladder gives way, and all that's left is the lack of freedoms, the invasiveness of the government and spy organizations, that is something that has historically led to pushbacks and protests and revolutions, all over the world, but also in China at times. It's hard to say how something like this might manifest, and we cannot use history as a perfect parallel or predictor for modern China. It's a truly unique situation in a truly unique time period that we're living in. But especially as more billionaires are minted in the country, and especially as more Chinese citizens travel, are educated elsewhere, go out and see the world and learn things that they were not able to learn about within their own country, and who then might question why things work that way because of that new influence and monetary power that they've attained, something could give. It could be a popular, by-the-books sort of thing, with political and economic will leveraged in a polite, quiet way to change things from the inside. Or it could be something outside the current power structure, and more violent and revolutionary. Either way, as resilient and in control as their system seems to be today, it could crumble relatively quickly in part as a consequence of their success, because their citizenry have come to take success and the expectation of a better tomorrow for granted. There's also a thankfully relatively smaller chance that China could be pulled into some kind of conventional military conflict with a currently more powerful country, like the United States, or an alliance of European countries, let's say, before it is fully up and running at its planned full potential. 
China's already got an impressive military force, but there are huge gaps in their infrastructure and capabilities, and any conventional war against a comparable or more well-developed and honed force would almost certainly be catastrophic for them, at least for the next decade, until they can fill in more of those gaps. We could also see a global pushback against authoritarian-style governance, just as we're currently seeing a pushback of sorts against some of the downsides of democratic capitalistic systems in the West. There are a lot of governments out there that resent China's rise and success and see it as a threat. It wouldn't take a war to knock them down a notch. It could be a series of trade wars or embargoes or unified pseudo-military actions that never lead to conflict but are still effective in multiple ways of stripping them of power and influence, all intended to slow China's role a bit and reinforce the current world order, which is predicated on liberal democratic values and systems predominantly. In other words, China is special in a way that makes other governments and even other cultures and economies uncomfortable. They have certain advantages because of the way they operate and what they consider to be fair play, and they have certain disadvantages that may never manifest in which they are reinforcing themselves to be capable of dealing with as they grow. It could be that in setting themselves apart in this way, they give birth to their own enemies, just as other burgeoning powers like the UK and the US have done in the past. Entities who had no reason to care about China when they were just an economically middling upstart, just a regional power, could decide that their growth and influence is not okay, and that something needs to be done about it before it's too late. Xi Jinping, who this year passed a law that essentially granted him the status of leader for life in China, if he decides to retain that position, gave a talk recently in which he doubled down on top-down economics, Communist Party control of as much as possible, and ever-increasing surveillance into every aspect of the Chinese citizen's life. This was an unwelcome announcement for some, as some internal and external commentators were hoping on the 40th anniversary of the transition away from Mao's cultural revolution that he might introduce new evolutions, new changes that would move the country closer to what we've come to think a global superpower should be, including the shiny new set of amplified human rights, moral dictates, and open trade ideologies. This was very much not the case, though. She declared that they would keep doing what was working and would grip even tighter all the things they were currently clutching. Liberalized reforms will not happen under his watch, and the superpower we can expect China to become if growth and development keeps up at its current pace will be something quite different from what Western powers might have hoped or expected. It's important to remember, as we think about China, see it in the news, hear reports about their accomplishments and oversteps, that they are a country with a rich, complex history, that they are following a rational path, if one that adheres to different moral and ideological codes than some of us might be used to, and that they're flourishing and making good choices in a variety of fields is actually very good for the planet, even if it's not always geopolitically beneficial to everyone involved. China deciding to go green, for instance, with their cars, with their buildings, with mass transit and bikes, is something that they are almost uniquely qualified to do, and to do well, because of their governing system and centralized control. It's also arguably beneficial to all of us because of their vast scale. 1.45 billion people is a hell of a lot of people, and that many people making those changes, producing less pollution, 
and being compelled to do so by the government, that's a big deal. They are uniquely qualified not just to make such changes relatively quickly and uniformly, but also to create a lot of good as they do so because of how many people and how much land and how many resources are involved. Those same capabilities and that same scale, though, can also push in the other direction. Any decisions they make and stances they take that are antagonistic to the world, whether that's in terms of pollution or human rights or whatever else, can massively influence the rest of us. Even if they are not a true superpower yet by most standards, they already enjoy many of the same trappings and benefits that superpowers traditionally enjoy. And that means year after year, for the foreseeable future, it's likely that their culture will influence the world's culture. Their economic choices will influence the price of electronics in Romania and the availability of tea in Kansas. And their surveillance infrastructure will shift the Overton window for other governments, adjusting the spectrum of what seems okay, or at least thinkable, what is achievable, and what could be implemented, even within other systems, with differing backgrounds, motivations, and priorities. If you'd like to come out and hear me speak live, or get a book signed, or get a hug, or a handshake, or both if you like, I am currently on tour around North America, and will be until September of 2019. If you're keen to check that out and come out and say howdy, you can find a list of tour stops and dates and get tickets at becomingtour.com. And you might be interested to know that I am starting in the new year a new project, something that I'm trying out to see if it has any legs, to see if there's any interest in it. It is kind of a riff on an advice column, and I'm starting it out as a website and am planning, if it goes well, if there is interest in an audience for it, to turn it into a podcast as well. So if you're interested to see what that is and perhaps ask a question about life that I may respond to with some thoughts on the matter, you can check out that new project at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a piece of science fiction, and it's the first book in a series. I think there's at least two or three of these right now, but I've only read the first one so far. And that first book is called The Corporation Wars, Dissidents. And this is a book by Ken McLeod. And the concept of this book is quite interesting. Basically, it takes a fairly unique approach to the idea of colonizing exoplanets, planets that are around other stars. And in this universe that he has built, these exoplanets are slowly but surely transitioned into something that we can live on. They are terraformed, based on what's already there, if anything by automated processes, satellites, machinery, manufactories, and artificial intelligences that are run primarily by corporations. And in this particular book, a couple of corporations around such an exoplanet are forced to train some former revolutionaries from a prior period in Earth's history who died during their revolution, but who were backed up onto computer systems, and they take those consciousnesses and train them to fight against a new enemy. And in this case, this new enemy is a collection of these terraforming robots that are down on a moon around this exoplanet, that have, through a series of unfortunate events, become conscious. And these sentient robots must be put down, because it was decided a long time ago that that is a plague that could spread and affect everyone, not just the human beings living around that exoplanet that might someday show up. 
So this story is told from the perspective of the people involved in this training program who are themselves just a bunch of code within a satellite and who are then fed into the bodies of combat robots, but also from the perspective of these robots that are gaining consciousness and struggling to understand their place in the world, what consciousness is, what the universe looks like, and how they should respond to all of this new information and understanding that they have. It's a very interesting concept. I fully intend to read the other books in this series, however many there are. If that's something that sounds interesting to you, if you're looking for a nice, fun read that is predicated on a really interesting concept, The Corporation Wars Dissidents by Ken McLeod is worth checking out. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find out more about my tour that I'm currently on around North America at becomingtour.com. And you can find out more about my new project, Some Thoughts About Living, at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.